All right, so let's go back to Ecclesiastes 3. How many of you were singing a song in your head as Rob read that? How many of you just a song came into your mind? I really raise your hand. I'm kind of curious what, about the room here. Like how many of you had a song? Okay, uh, the rest of you, maybe you're probably young. Um, but I didn't know who sang it, but I remembered it. And, and so, yeah, it, it, this, it's literally word for word. For everything turn, turn, turn. Y'all didn't know I was going to do that, did you? There is a season turn. Listen, I've been singing this for two weeks as I've been studying this passage. So like I'm eager to like preach it and move on because that song has just been in my head. And so if you don't know, that's from 1965. The band was The Birds and, and it, their lyrics are word for word out of the scripture here. Uh, this is a, a very well-known passage of scripture, uh, probably the most well-known from Ecclesiastes uh, in large part due to that song. It's also, it, this is a poem, verses one through eight. It's a poem. You, you hear it uh, you may have heard it read at funerals and other um, um, events and, um, you know, maybe graduations, different things where, where we just sort of acknowledge that seasons are changing, right? And there's, there's uh, maybe loss. And so um, this, is, this is common. This is popular. However, I think in order to really understand verses 1 through 8 as more than just a poem, we got to look at 9 through 15 as well. We got we to gotta let, and really even the, the verses before that, because this has been a, an interesting book. If you've been here with us, the book of Ecclesiastes has walked us through some crazy uh, you know, taking us all the way to the end of some paths that we think are going to lead us to happiness. And Solomon says, no, no, I've been there, done that. And let me tell you, it's all vanity. And so he's done that with things like pleasure and wisdom and knowledge and work. And, and, um, and it's been dark at times. It's been a little bit depressing where he said, you know what, what's the point? But if you remember two weeks ago, uh, when we were finishing up chapter two, he, he sort of shifted a bit. And instead of just saying everything under the sun is vanity, he started to say, okay, but when you add in the perspective of God, when you add in our faith, when you add in who God is, it actually gives meaning and purpose to all of the stuff that without God is vanity. But when you bring God in, it actually brings meaning and purpose and it can even bring joy. And so that, that, that is what we're, we're coming off of. Remember these, these chapter you know, um, and verse notations are arbitrary because they're added later. And so we want to look at the book as it flows. Generally, as Solomon is, is writing this book, he, he goes right after um, kind of bringing us into that place of, hey, actually, when you bring God into your work, you can actually enjoy what you're doing and what you're earning by what you're doing because he's going to give purpose to that. And then he goes right into to sort of this this rhythm of seasons and time. And so the, the, the song literally is right from this uh, verse, and it, and it says, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. Now right there we see a little bit of a difference because what's he said before? Every time that he's unpacking something or stepping into a subject, he says everything under the sun. And that's a primary theme throughout Ecclesiastes. He's saying everything under the sun, it's pointless, it's meaningless. If you try to get meaning out of it, it will slip through your hands like you're trying to grasp onto vapor or smoke. It, it won't be there. But here, again, he's been talking about God at the end of chapter two, and now he says everything, every matter under heaven. So, so he's, he seems to be lingering in this perspective of when God is in view, it's not just stuff under the sun. There's more going on than just earth. There, there's, there's a greater perspective. And so he says, when that's in mind, there's actually a purpose to the different seasons of life. But without that in mind, it seems just turn, 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 right? You think about the era that that was written in, right? I just smoke a joint, brother. It's just a season, man, right? 
I wasn't there, sorry. Y'all, y'all can inform me later. But, but like that idea of like just, just that culture of like, yeah, man, it's, it's, it's like this poem, this, this portion of scripture has been read as a poem at non-Christian funerals, even like humanistic uh, worldview funerals, nihilistic people that say there's really nothing more, there's nothing beyond just the, the physical wor- world and realm. They can embrace this idea of like, hey, there's a season, right? There's a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up, right? They can enter in and just acknowledge that, hey, seasons change, but, but it's, it's more than that, right? It, it has a purpose to be in God's word. It's not just a piece of you know, a beautiful poetry that God decided he'd feature and wrap it around. No, there's a, there's a reason that God has it here, and, and it's redeemed greatly as we have the perspective of God being over all. Okay, so the very first thing that, that he says there is a time for is a time to be born and a time to die. So right there, he's going to book in all of our existence, isn't he? So, so from the very start, he's going to say, listen, there's a, there's a time to be born. There's a time to die. That what, what he's saying with this is, hey, God has placed us here not accidentally, but on purpose, right? We, we, a lot of our theology boils down here as we look at, uh, you know, passages like Psalm 139, where we, it, you know, back to, we use this for the pro-life movement a, a lot, rightly so. But even if you think about our life and how much, you know, what role does God play in our life? Psalm 139 says that, that in our mother's womb, we were intricately and wonderfully made, meaning God God was, God was doing that. And just ask it this way. How much did you have to do with your birth? Nothing, right? Like whatever, whatever was going on to your parents that led to that moment, right? Like it wasn't your deal. It was beyond you, right? Like you were born out of your control into circumstances that you didn't create, into a family that you didn't choose, but you were born. And, and then, you know, Hebrews is going to say, hey, it's appointed unto man that, that we will die. So that's, that's perspective. God has chosen when will we, be, we will be born, and he's chosen when we will die. And it's not arbitrary. And, and it's the, so he starts out right there saying, from birth to death, there, there's a reason, there's a purpose. We're going to see that all of this is framed in verse 11. He says he, that God has made everything beautiful in its time. So, so kind of the big idea here is that all of these things, and he's going to use these, these um, I think, 14 opposites to sort of frame up all, all of life. Because it's one thing to just say, hey, all of life has a purpose, like the Lord's going to work that out. And, 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 and sometimes we just give those sorts of things as religious platitudes, don't we? We just say, oh, I mean, I know you're suffering right now, but the Lord has a purpose. You know, just, just pray about it or whatever. And it feels like, yeah, but like I'm hurting. I talked to a guy the other day that, that, that has pulled away from the church uh, because it was nominally connected before, and then he's talking about his dad just kind of, uh, you know, got rat- his dad was abusive as a kid, and then he got radically saved, and now is in like the fundamentalist category where, man, he's just like, everything's a rule and everything. And, but what really bothered this guy that I was talking to, I hadn't, I hadn't seen him in years, I saw him at Marion's graduation, and what really bothered him was that every time he would try to in, like, talk to his dad about something he was struggling with, his dad would say, well, just give it to the Lord, son. And he's like, I mean, what? Like, for him, that was like, what do, what do you, like, okay, dad, but like, I'm, I'm hurting or I'm struggling. Like, you can't just say that and expect it to, like, it's cheap. It, it's, it's become like, it's just a platitude, right? And so to say, okay, yeah, from birth to death, God has a purpose for your life, but you're gonna run into some things that are hard, some things that are complex and some things that are challenging and, and heartbreaking, and, and you gotta have more than just a, a platitude to throw at it. 
You gotta have more in your theology than just a, yeah, I mean, the Lord's good. Like, you, you gotta dive a little deeper, so Solomon's gonna go there for us. He's gonna go there and he's gonna frame it up, and we're not gonna unpack each of these, because again, I think to make sense of this, we need to get to nine through 15. But uh, he, he's really gonna walk us through, okay, there's, there's actually different parts of life, and, and here's the deal. Those of you that are real concrete and black and white thinkers, this is gonna frustrate you, right? Because it's just don't, it, it don't work that way. Okay, and those of you that are like gray area thinkers, you're gonna be like, yeah, yeah, like it's gonna be, so, so just, just be prepared, right? That, that's just gonna be a challenge because he's gonna say, okay, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to pluck up what is planted, right? Again, that, that, that's not controversial, right? We, we plant, all right, harvest time comes, we pluck that up, right? And maybe it's not even harvest, maybe it's just, okay, <laughs> plants come to our house, like we're the hospice care for plants, so don't buy us plants, we got like all kinds of black thumbs at our house. Like we don't even pretend anymore. It's just how it is, right? We're, we're trying to raise kids. We don't do plants. That's just, the kids is all we can, that's all we can handle, right? So sometimes, you know, somebody else planted it and for us, it's just time to call it, right? Time of death, we got to get that thing up. Like it's, it's just an ugly thing. We got to pluck it up, right? Um, a time, listen, a time to kill and a time to heal. Now this starts to get a little more challenging, doesn't it? Because when we're thinking about God framing all of this up and making it beautiful in its time, we're cool with God healing, aren't we? But is God really over a time to kill, too? Like, is that his thing? You see, very often, even if we weren't explicitly taught this way, we want to approach our theology, and we kind of want it to be a buffet, don't we? We don't want to just, we don't want to have to order it all. We don't want to have to accept it all. We want to go, go through and pick out, hey, you know, I want some chicken. I want some, I, want some, I want some gravy. I want some bread. I don't want those green beans. I don't want that, you know, I want a spinach. Why do they put spinach on a buffet? Who's eating that, right? I don't know. But Popeye, he's the only person I know to eat spinach ever. It's cool. Like, it's just, it's just gross. It's mushy. Why are we doing that? You can eat it. Don't cook it. Don't cook spinach. That's my real beef. But anyway, I don't know why you're putting that on there. So we want to be able to pick and choose what we want out of a buffet. Like we want to approach God that way. Like we, we want, like I want God to be over, you know, babies being born. What a gift from the Lord, right? What a gift from the Lord when, it, when a baby's born and a baby laughs. And, and, and those, are, those are very clear moments. Like a day like today. It's a beautiful day, right? Yesterday. How many of y'all just enjoy? This is a beautiful season right now. We're good with the Lord being over that. Okay, but now, when lives are taken, when a tornado sweeps through, tsunamis, hurricanes, that gets a little harder to swallow, doesn't it? But this is, this is saying the Lord's behind it all. He, he has a reason for these things. He has a purpose that they will serve. He is... Behind, he has, he has a reason and a time to, to both be born and to kill. Now, just as a quick side note, we were going to talk. We're going to talk about the problem. Um, we're going to get into the problem of evil next week. Okay, and so there's some overlap here, and you're going to kind of be wanting me to address some of that, but we're going to separate that and come back. Okay, so there's there's some overlap, and we'll we'll just going to touch on, on what this passage is, but it's going to get deeper into that issue next week. And so I just want to give you a, a note because you're going to be wishing that I would address that more, and we're, we're just going to we're going to put it there. So. Uh, a time to break down and a time to, to build up. Time to break down, a time to build up. So there's times whenever, okay, this, you know, we, we need to, uh, you know, get rid of that building. It, it's no longer salvageable. The, the, the amount of money that it would take to, to 
Keep it functioning doesn't make sense with just tearing it down and building up. But there's other times when it, it is time to build. It's time to, to repair. It's time to build up. And, and everything in between there, right? It's time to tear it down and build up. That, that, those, are the, those are the bookends. So there's a whole lot of repair. There's a whole lot of appropriate like engaging and, and fixing and painting and facelifting in, in, in the midst of that, right? So again, these are, these are opposites to show us that God has a purpose for all of life. He's just gonna look at different perspectives and show the opposites. And it's not just that God is in those extremes, it's that he's in those extremes and everything in between. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. Now you Baptist, it's, it's in here, okay? It just, it says it, it's okay, there's a time to dance. Some of you are like, I know, it's gonna be a short time at certain ceremonies. Church I was married in, only three dances after my wedding, like it's in the bylaws, right? You're wrong, Baptist, it's dancing, right? You're wrong. <clears throat> it's a time to mourn. Like God has, a, like he is there with us in these moments. Like there are seasons of life, there are things that happen where it, we, we have to mourn. Like that's the only, that's the natural response, that's the godly response. Like we have to Mourn. We have to, to step in. We, we, there, there's times when we have to, to weep, right? Those are, those are good and right things. All of this, actually, I want you to have in your mind as we walk through the rest of these things and we see that God makes them beautiful in his time, I want you to be thinking about Jesus. Because Jesus embodies the very like, nature of all of these things. He is the great creator, but he's also the one who's going to come and destroy all of sin, right? The things that have been distorted, he will get rid of. He is the one who is planted. He will pluck up. He prunes like all of this imagery is there. But even when Jesus enters in, and we're talking about a time to weep and a time to laugh, sometimes we don't know about Jesus in those moments. But, but, but here's the deal. Jesus was, was very much a man, and he allowed himself to enter into our mess, and he felt what we feel, and he experienced what we experience. One of the most beautiful passages to me is from John chapter 11, when Jesus enters into the pain of Mary and Martha after they lost their brother Lazarus. Now, you know the story because Jesus is about to call Lazarus back out of the grave. And you might know the story that Jesus actually took his time coming uh, before, you know, when he heard Lazarus was sick, he didn't go right away. Instead, he let him die. But, and he knows that he's on his way. He's told his disciples, hey, this is not the kind of sickness that leads to death, right? And everybody's confused because Lazarus straight up died. They put him in a grave. And, but even though he knows he's about to, to say Lazarus' name and he's going to get out of the grave, what does he do when he walks up and he sees the pain of Mary and Martha? He weeps. He weeps with them. He enters in and he feels that. It's a season of weeping. It's a season of weeping, and Jesus is not afraid of that. He's not afraid of your emotions. He's not afraid of your pain. You don't, like we try to say here often at the journey, we don't want to put plastic smiles on and pretend that we're okay. Because the reality is sometimes we're not okay. Sometimes life has, has kicked us in the gut and then knocked us down and, and seems to just keep pounding on us, right? And, and, and to put on a, a fake smile and to just to pretend that's not honoring to the Lord. He doesn't expect that from you. He doesn't do that himself. He enters in and he weeps and he mourns with them, even though he knows the end. And that's so crucial. It's what we're going to see. The way that he makes everything beautiful in its time is that he is not bound by time and he's outside of time. And in eternity, he's going to bring all of this together and it's going to make perfect sense. 
But in the meantime, we don't see it. Just like Mary and Martha, they don't, they don't see it. They're on the other side of the story. They don't know that Lazarus is about to come back out of the grave. So for them, it's all mourning and all weeping, and Jesus goes there with him. So God's not afraid of your pain. He's not afraid of your sorrow. He's also not afraid of your celebration. This is another thing. I've joked about Baptists. I was raised Baptist, but, but man, they didn't teach us to celebrate well. There's a story about Jesus. His first miracle happens at a wedding. Listen, Baptist weddings are boring. I told you earlier, they literally wrote in the bylaws, you can't dance more than three times. And, and, but then I came, I think it was the journey, even in St. Louis. And then, man, some of y'all down here, you know how to throw a party. And like, man, these people know how to dance and nobody taught me how to dance. I'm very Caucasian, right? It's just <laughs> the rhythm's not there for me. It, but man, some people know how to dance and how to party. I remember going to a, a, I remember going to a wedding in St. Louis and like people, people were celebrating. They were, they were enjoying wine and, and champagne rightly, right? There wasn't drunkenness, but it was like enjoyment. And people were, were dancing and enjoy, like there was, there was rejoicing. There was laughing. And I was like, man, this is so redemptive. I remember feeling like, is this okay? Like, it's okay. I think it's okay. Like, um, and it is, but, but sometimes we're not set up well for that. Jesus does. He, he, he enters the party in, in John chapter two, right? And, and they run out of wine. And Jesus' mom comes to him, and he's like, all right, like, there's a whole bunch of barrels over there. Let Go get them. And, and they turn water to wine. Like, it's a crazy story. But Jesus, it, it, he knows how to celebrate. Like, he's, he's entering into that, laughing and dancing and, and everything in between. So what you're feeling in your best moments, some of you are in those seasons. Some of you are enjoying life right now. You teachers are enjoying life right now, right? It's over. You, you made it, right? You, you got the summer. You're like, you, you're, this is a good season. This is your moment, right? You're like, yeah, vacation's coming. Like, evidently, one of the seasons it is right now is vacation season. We're a little empty today. Everybody's gone. And that's okay. It's okay. A lot of pastors are going to be bummed out about today's attendance across the, the world. But listen, it's okay. It's not wrong to vacation. It's not wrong to celebrate. It's not wrong to rest. Some of you got trips planned. Enjoy. God, God has given us that. It's okay. It's good. There's seasons of that. Others of you, you're in seasons of mourning and weeping. You're barely holding back tears, even being here. Right? Like the reality that you're facing is crushing to you. It doesn't mean that God is absent. It doesn't mean that God has left you. He promises he'll be with us. You know the famous Psalm, Psalm 23, that says that we walk through the valley of shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. Why? Because God is with us. You notice that Psalm doesn't say, oh, because when you get in this valley of shadow of death, I'll get you out of there. Or or I'll take you around it. No, he says, you're going to go in there, and and I'm going to be with you. You won't have to fear because I'm going to enter in with you. See, the Lord is not uh, afraid of the, the tension of our lives. And there's going to be seasons of mourning and weeping and seasons of rejoicing and seasons of fear and, and seasons of tension. And that's okay. Like what, what we're invited into through passages like this is to trust the Lord in these seasons. A lot of times our frustration comes by not acknowledging a changing of seasons. I, uh, I worked with a guy my first like real job where I like turned in a W-4 and they, you know, took out taxes and stuff off the farm. When I was 18, I go to college, I get a job at Hibbit Sports. And uh, I had, the, the assistant manager had been working there a few months before me and he was a goofball, but uh, he had moved from Florida and he had no intentions of staying in Illinois very long. And so he refused to buy Southern Illinois wardrobe. He just wore his shorts and flip-flops all the time and t-shirts. And I'm like, Bro, it's, it's January, man. Like, you scraped ice off your car this morning 
and yet you're in flip-flops and shorts. He's like, I know, but I'm not staying here long. I re- and he would just refuse to buy a coat, buy pants. Like, and it was just like, he just refused, right? And I'm like, man, there's, there's seasons here in Southern Illinois. I know the Florida is just Florida, but like there's seasons here. You're gonna need to adapt and, and move with and out. Like not knowing what season it is is a problem. And, and then more than that, not acknowledging what season it is is even more of a problem. Right? And so for some of us, our frustration comes with the Lord specifically and with our lives because we're unwilling to acknowledge the season that we're in. We're unwilling to let go of the season we just came out of. That was him. Right? I'm unwilling to acknowledge that it's cold here. And that's what leads to our frustration. Those of you who are parents, you know that your kids get mad at you a lot. My kids roll their eyes because I'm like, I'm the bedtime police. You're like, oh my gosh, like just leave us alone. But it's, it's time to go to bed, right? Why? Because I'm just a jerk and, you know, I want to kill all their fun? No, like, like I know they need sleep. Their little bodies are growing. If they don't get sleep, then they're cranking the next day and we all hate our life. We're all reading Ecclesiastes and, and amening Solomon's, you know, what's the point? Because they're just angry and there's tears and it's time to go to bed. But, but they, don't, they don't see that bigger picture. They're just frustrated at me. That's, that's how we are with God so often. Right? He's, he's moved us into a different season. He's not left us. It's not that he doesn't love us. It's a different season for us. And when we refuse to acknowledge that, we're frustrated with him because we want to stay in our season. We want to stay where we are. We don't want to go into that season, right? But Solomon's saying, hey, actually, what I've realized is the Lord's in all of it. The Lord is in all of it. He, he, there's a time to, to cast away, verse five, and a time to gather, uh, there's a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. I don't know how to apply that one to y'all. You just do what you want. A, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. Listen, there, there are times in your life where absolutely it is a good thing to embrace people most of the time. In fact, it's the, it's the loving Christian thing to, to, to embrace people, to bring people in, especially people that are broken and struggling and, and walking with. But there's also a time not to embrace. There's a time to say, okay, your, your lifestyle, your, your, the way that you're living and, and kind of giving God the, the, the middle finger and saying, I don't want to do what you're saying to do. Like, the New Testament would say there's times where you gotta, you got to kick that dude out. you gotta, you got to move them out of the church. We're no longer going to embrace your lifestyle. We'll still love you, right? we still walk with you, but we, we, we're not going to embrace this because it's out of step with God's word, and that's, that's okay. That's okay. That, that is not, contrary to what, you know, oftentimes some movements in our culture would, would lead us to believe, that's not unloving. This is risky, but it's not unloving for Nancy Pelosi's Catholic leader, I don't know all their hierarchies, to say, you can't have communion. Right? But you notice the narrative. Well, how, how dare he? That's not his job. And everybody's like, it's actually very much explicitly his job. Like, you, you could disagree with it, but that's very much his job, right? But, but, but a lot of what happens, we juxtapose these things. We say, well, we, if we're going to be loving, we can't tell anybody no. If we're going to be loving, we can't not embrace everybody because love embraces everybody. And what the Bible says is no. Sometimes the most loving thing to do is to say, that's wrong, and you need to repent. And until you repent, we're going to withhold the blessing of God's church over you. Like, and that's okay. That's a loving thing. 
When the New Testament says that we should remove someone from our fellowship because they've been, they've been pursued and applied to church discipline, people have asked them to repent, they've lovingly pursued them. When it says treat them like an unbeliever, we need to keep in mind that doesn't mean we never talk to them again. Because here's the newsflash, if you don't know, there should be unbelievers in your life. And you know how you should be treating them? Loving them, inviting them into the kingdom of God, right? Inviting them to the repent. So the same thing is true. You just, we're just removing our affirmation of their Christianity because they're not living as though Jesus is Lord. And so, again, that's a, that's a can that's bigger for, than I can unpack right now. So if you need to ask questions about that, you can later too. But, but the idea is, is sometimes it's, there's a time to embrace, sometimes there's a, there's a time not to embrace, to refrain from it, right? A time to seek, right? And a time to lose, right? There's a time whenever you need to be going after something and someone, right? To seeking them, like that's, that you devote your whole life to finding them, right? My, I, my two-year-old, y'all have seen me chasing that kid around. I feel like since I joked a couple weeks ago, he's just like, yeah, let me show everybody. Like we, there's a time to seek that kid like three times a week. We just lose it. We're like, well, where's Moose? We're like all hands on deck, like let's, where's Moose? And we got to go outside, right? And, and he's running, like he'll just run across the yard. He'll run to the neighbor's yard. He don't care, like he's running. So we run down the road. We, we live on a dead end street. Thankfully, uh, don't call DCFS. Good grief, this sounds bad. I promise we watch this kid, but he's just nuts. And there's a time we got to seek him. Everybody's got to hunt this kid, right? He's nuts. There's there's other times, and you know that that's true of, of people. That's true of, of of jobs. That's true of stuff. But then there's other times where you got to go. Okay, I can't. There's a time to to, to lose. There's a time to give up. Right? We wrestled with his case for a long time, wondering if the judge was going to decide for us that it was a time for us to lose him. Other foster parents have gone through that, where those kiddos have gone home, and, and it's no longer time to seek. It's, it's time to lose. And that's okay. The Lord's there. He's with us. Okay? A time to tear and a time to sow. Right? It makes sense. You could totally, it's not, it's not hard for you to play out situations where it's time to tear something and, and make something out of it or, or to tear something, you know, like, I don't know, this could be as practical as like, you need a tourniquet. It's time to tear that shirt, right? And, and get a tourniquet around that deal. There's other times where it's time to sew. It's time to build things up, right? Like, and that can just be applied to so many things generally, but his point is there's a time to tear, a time to sew. Like that, that's part of life. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. The Bible has a lot more to say about this. But this is, this is much more of a, of, a, of a discipline than it is just a gift, right? This is not just about quiet people and loud people. This is about uh, James talking about taming our tongue and learning the power of listening and being slow to speak versus just opening our mouth anytime we have an opinion. And by open our mouth, that can mean fire up your thumbs on social media. Right? There's a time when you just need to be quiet. Just be quiet. There's a time whenever, maybe it doesn't go on social media, it goes to your community group. Okay? Or it goes to your friend. And then there's other times where you need to speak up. Okay? Abortion clinic, come into Carbon. Like, there's a time to speak up. Do we value life? Yes. It's the time to speak up. Innocent people are being harmed. Yes, there's a time to speak up. A time to love and a time to hate. Again, the love thing, that's, that's easy. We totally see how God's behind that. But a time to hate? 
Again, that's, that's the extreme pole there of, of you know, relational emotions. But, but he's saying, like, there's a time whenever you have to, like, that, that, will, that will happen. There'll be righteous anger. There'll be a, a moment whenever, yeah, there, there's, there's such evil happening. We, we hate the evil. Like, we'll talk about Bonhoeffer and, and, and his tension of living in Nazi Germany. And, like, you have to hate what's happening in those moments for you to a- apply love and affirmation to anything that the culture is doing is dangerous and harmful to human life, right? So, so there's a time to love, a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. This is a tension, and there's, there's a lot of ink been spilled about what, what's the Christian's position supposed to be on, on war and self-defense and, and violence and those sorts of things. And there, there are a lot of uh, really great men and women throughout the ages that have, that have come to a place to believe that, that Christians should be pacifists and that we, we, we always turn the other cheek and we never engage in war. There's never a just war. There's never a just cause, right? But there's, 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 there's a, lot, a lot of others and, and uh, we, you know, here, here the journey would fall into the category of like there is a time when war is necessary and just. There is a time whenever it, like it is the most loving thing to do to stand up for your neighbor. Like if we're called to love our neighbor, when does it become unloving to not defend them, not stand up for them? Right, and I, and I mentioned Bonhoeffer earlier because if you don't know his story, Dietrich Bonhoeffer lived and, and wrote an incredible amount of helpful Christian material, the cost of discipleship and life together. I, I might be butchering that one, but one on community. And, and um, Man, he's so, such a helpful thinker. And we quote him here fairly regularly, and you've heard other people quote him if you've never read him directly. But, uh, but the Lord used him mightily. And, and so much of his work was about, um, you know, Christians being like, don't, don't defend ourselves. Don't, you know, don't, um, don't be physical. Don't, like, take, take the persecution, which is good and right. We looked at that in the, in the uh, Sermon on the Mount. Like, when it comes to our um, defending, our, like, if we're being persecuted for our faith, like we don't, we, we do turn the other cheek, right? So, so let me, I think it's helpful. I've said this before, but I think it's helpful. Um, if, if the authorities come in here, if the laws change, it's no longer legal to gather. The authorities come in here and tell us, um, you know, that we, we can no longer do this. And they look at me directly and they say, shut this down or we're going to arrest you. Well, listen, we got, we got security guards in here. I'm not sicking them on him. We're not pulling guns on him so that I don't go to jail. Okay, sir. I'm going to jail, right? Like that, I'm not going to resist that. I'm not going to fight that. But if, if someone comes in here with a gun, shooting innocent people just at, at, a, at a rapid pace for no apparent reason, is it loving for us to stand by and just to take that? I would say absolutely not. I would say God has called us to, to step in and protect our neighbor and our vulnerable people and, and to, to put it into that evil, right? So there's a tension there. Again, this is the black and white stuff. It don't, it don't work, right? There, there's, there's gray area. Like we have to understand that by and large, we, are not, we don't seek revenge. Not by and large, we don't seek revenge. And by and large, we do turn the other cheek when we're being persecuted for our faith. But when it comes to stepping up and protecting innocent life, there's a time for war. There's a time for self-defense, right? So, so there's tensions here, and, and it just unpacks all this stuff. But again, just on its own, this can be read at a humanist funeral. This can be read and celebrate life whenever people have no 
concept of Jesus, no concept of the gospel. So as we go on, verse nine, he says, what gain has the worker from his toil? This is a question he's asked often. Solomon, if you don't know, if you're new, checking out, that's the question he's asking. What is life about? Why are we doing this? What's the point? So he says, what gain has the worker from his toil? I've seen the business that God has given children of man to be busy with. He says, I've observed it. I've done it all. If you don't know, Solomon had the, the resources to do it all. And he says, I've seen it. I know what God has given man to do. I know the struggles. I know the pain. I know the joys. I know the pleasures. What's the point? In verse 11, he says, he has made everything beautiful in its time. He's made everything beautiful in its time. What does that mean? That, that God isn't caught off guard by the stuff that's happening to you. He has a purpose for it. And as we, as we, we go on, let, let's, let's, he's going to make it make sense. Okay, that's kind of the spoiler. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. Okay, what, what does that mean? It means he's, he's placed in us a stirring and a longing so that we don't just think about what, like, we don't just think about what's in front of us and we don't just think about life. Like, there's something that forces us to look beyond this life, forces us to look and to ask the questions of what's the point, forces us at funerals. And at, how many, like, we know people that have been sobered up into asking questions about faith because they've lost someone dear, right? Because when you're confronted with mortality, it forces you to think beyond this life. Right? And, and, and the pleasures and the goodness of this life are all to point us to something greater. So he's put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot, so that we can't find out what God has done from the beginning to end. Now, what is that about? Why did he do that? Why did he place inside of us this thirst and this longing for eternity and yet put this limitation on us so that we could not understand all that he's doing? Why, why would he do that? Well, the, the reason that he does it is to drive us to him. You see, because the other options are that either God becomes like us and he doesn't know what's happening tomorrow either, in which case he's not a God, right? If, if, if God doesn't know, if God's caught off guard by evils like the Holocaust and like what happened last week at that school, if he's caught off guard by that, then he's, he's not really God. If he didn't really know that that was going to happen, then, he, then he's not God, and he is no help. But likewise, if, if he reveals to us all that, that he's doing, then we will be God with him, right? And, and we don't have the capacity to maintain that knowledge. We don't have the capacity to, to use that rightly. And so he must keep us in this place of he's creator and we are his children, so part of understanding and being able to enjoy life and being able to, to move from season to season is going to be for us to become like children to where we respect him as father and we know that he has a purpose even when we don't understand it. So, so part of the, 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 the invitation of this passage here in Ecclesiastes is for us to become childlike in our faith in the same way that we expect our children to, to obey us and to trust us because we know more than they know. God is inviting us to, to trust us and obey, uh, oh, trust him and obey him because he knows more than we know. And what he knows is at the end, this will all make sense. At the end, he has a grand plan. At the end, he'll make everything beautiful in its time. The suffering you've gone through that you can't see and you can't imagine an outcome of which you would celebrate this. There'll be a day whenever you see what he was doing 
and you rejoice at his purposes. He will make everything beautiful in its time. I perceive, verse 12, that there's nothing better for them to, uh, than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, everyone should eat, drink, and take pleasure in all of his toil. This is God's gift to man. Now, this is different than the parable of the rich man who says, hey, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. That's, that's not what is being said here. What is being said is, hey, God is, is, is not lost control. He has a purpose for all of these pieces of life. So our role is to trust him and to live and enjoy the season that's before us. It's okay. Like if we keep striving, you could see the difference because if we keep striving and, 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 and longing for life to, if we think that once we arrive here, we'll be happy, then we're not gonna be able to eat, drink, and take pleasure in our toil. Why? Because we think we gotta get here. And here just keeps getting moved, right? We never quite arrive. But when we realize, oh no, we don't need to get here, we need to get here before the Lord, recognizing that, that we are his people, that he's sovereign, and we are not. When we get here and we live in this posture, now I'm not trying to get to that place. I'm not striving in that same way. And I can enjoy my day. I can rest with the work that has been accomplished. I can leave it there. I can, I can rest when my children aren't living the way that I wish that they would live and our relationship is not solid. I can rest whenever we're not sure how we're going to pay the bills. Why? Because God has got this thing and he has a purpose for us and, and he will make it all beautiful in its time and that allows us to trust Right? This, is, this is Philippians 4, way back in the Old Testament, long before Paul was writing it and, and going through prison and shipwreck and all of these things. And Paul says, listen, I figured out the way to, to be happy in life, to be content in all things. I, I figured out how to be content when I have a lot. And I figured out how to be content when I got nothing. I'm in a jail cell. And that, that is to, that's because I have Christ. That's when he says I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? He ain't warming up for some basketball game, right? Just, just so you know. We, we've taken that out of, out of context. That dude's in jail. This Solomon's saying the same thing. When you get this, you can rejoice no matter what your circumstances are. And you can acknowledge, okay, God has me in this season, and he is still good. This is his gift. Verse 14, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Think about what you do. This Solomon's big point is like, no matter what I do, how, how good it is, how, how awesome it is, I can't take it with me. It won't last forever. And, and, and I got to leave it to some other dude who may or may not be an idiot. It don't last. But he says what God does lasts forever. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken from it. God has done it. Why? So that people fear before him. All of this, right? God has designed the world to work this way so that we can't get out of the world what we're only supposed to get from him. He's designed the world to frustrate us and to be less than so that as we get and as we acquire and as things work out or as they don't work out, we will look to him. We will lift our eyes to the hills. Where does the help come from? It comes from God. That's the point. That's why he's designed it this way, so that we will fear him. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. The fear of the Lord is, is where we start to receive salvation. The fear of the Lord is where we live our day in and day out as Christians, fearing him and trusting him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. There's a lot of debate about what that last verse means and uh, frankly, I'm not totally sure. Uh, and some want to apply that to 
the Lord pursuing the lost sheep. And I think that's, I mean, obviously our theology, our theology allows that. It's good and right. But I think in this context, he's talking about time. So he's going to make everything beautiful in its time. And it, it means everything. I'm going to be honest. That's hard. When news stories like last week and the shooting in, in Texas happens. That's hard when I have people come to my office telling me about being sexually assaulted and taken advantage of as children. That, that's hard when I think about kids. Like, it's hard for me to say, like, yeah, God's, he has a purpose for that. It's hard. I don't, I don't like it, if I'm being honest. But this says everything. If you've read the story of Job, again, we'll get into this a little bit with evil, but you think about what Job went through. You think about God allowing it for his family to be taken away. The suffering that he went through, the Lord allowed that. And has and will someday more fully make it beautiful. How, how could you make what Job went through, losing his whole family, beautiful? Well, only when there's a God who knows more than we know. Only when there's a God who loves us more than we can love ourselves and love our own life. Only when there's a God who loves us to the point of not just sitting back and saying, you'll see someday, but only when there's a God who says, you know what, hold on, I'm coming down there with you. I'm gonna come and enter into your pain. This is the story of the gospel. This is what makes everything beautiful in its time is that Jesus stepped out of time or he stepped out of this place where he wasn't bound by time and into our life and into this earth and into our mess and into this brokenness and says, I love you so much that I'm going to experience what you experience. I'm going to suffer the way that you have suffered. I'm going to be tempted the way that you are tempted. I'm going to experience loss the way that you've experienced loss. And I'm going to bear it all in a way that you couldn't bear it. I'm going to live the life that you couldn't live. And I'm going to die the death that you deserve to die. And I'm going to get back up out of the grave. And I'm going to invite you to receive me as your salvation. And when you do that, you have a future in eternity. And when you have a future in eternity, you realize, okay, God will make all this make sense in the end. And I'm in a season, and I may not like it, but I can still trust him. So if you're here, you don't know Jesus, that's your biggest need. You may not know that. You may not realize that. You may just be hoping that, you know, you could, like, we can help you do life a little bit better. No, the Bible's not about that. The Bible's about taking care of your your biggest problem, your eternal problem that you may or may not even know you have. But you're a sinner separated from God on your way to hell. That's your biggest problem. That's your biggest source of angst. And that's what Jesus has come to take care of primarily. So that's where we have to start. And then that allows everything else. It's not going to make sense on this side of it, but it'll be made beautiful one day. So he seeks what's been driven away. Some of you have hidden stuff in your past. You've actually driven it away in your mind because you don't want to face it. You don't want to deal with it. You're not sure you can. History has tucked things back in the corner. Just saying, God's going to bring all that back on the table. He's not afraid of any of it. He will grieve what needs to be grieved. He will rejoice what needs to be rejoiced in, and then he'll make it all make sense as he puts together his 
eternal kingdom here on earth. So you've got stuff in your life you've never told anybody about. The Lord knows. You've shed tears that nobody has seen you cry. The Lord has seen. You have fears daily that you've never told anybody about. He sees you. He knows. And he seeks what's been driven away so that he can step in and redeem it even to the point of making it beautiful. That in Jesus, there's an opportunity and a hope that the darkest things you've ever experienced and that we've ever known can one day be acknowledged as beautiful as he puts his plan into place. That's the hope of the gospel. It goes beyond reason. It goes beyond logic. But that's our Jesus. Let's pray. God, help us. We need it as always. Help us to, to let you in. Help us to let you uh, be our God. And that means surrendering our stuff and our pain and our fear and our shame and our past and our future. Help us to become childlike in our faith as we place our faith in you, a true and sturdy and worthy father who's not shaken by the chaos of our life who's not shaken by the tides of, of culture and the changing of, of empires. You're not shaken by any of that. Help us to put our trust in you this morning, Jesus, and to bring our lives before you so that you can, can speak redemption and speak hope over us. Help us, Jesus. It's in your name we pray.